look at what God says about praying in perilous times this morning. Praying in perilous times, and I trust that this message uh, will be as much of a blessing to your soul as it has been to mine throughout the week, as I've been dwelling upon uh, this beautiful psalm. Here is the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God, and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and violent men have sought my life, and they have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes and destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I will sacrifice you. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. And now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23, beginning with verse 15, where we have the historical record uh, which stands behind uh, this particular psalm of complaint slash lament, cry for help. 1 Samuel 23, beginning with verse 15. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. And thus he said, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish, while Jonathan went to his house. And then Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is the south of Jeshurun? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so. Our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now go make sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself. Return to me with certainty, and I will go out with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on the one side of the mountain, and David his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. For Saul and his men were surrounding David, and his men to seize him. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. And therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there, and he stayed in the stronghold. Of uh, let's uh, come now to God and ask for His help to understand His Word this morning. O oh God, You have prepared for those who love You such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards You that we, loving You in all things and above all things, may obtain Your promises which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen? You may be seated. I'm sure...
prayer that we're all familiar with this morning with what's called a foxhole prayer. A foxhole prayer. It's just sort of a way to talk about praying fervently in dramatic situations for immediate help. It's a way of praying fervently in dramatic situations where you need immediate help. And a veteran of the Korean War illustrates this concept. A young man at the age of 17 uh, went off with his unit to battle in Korea. And his unit was charged with the task of charging up a hill after the enemy. And just about the time that they went on the attack towards the enemy, the enemy began uh, gunning them down one by one. And as uh, this particular gentleman went running up the hill with a grenade clutched in his hand, uh, just about ready to throw it up uh, against his attackers, uh, he was shot with a bullet and immediately paralyzed and fell to the ground. And he saw as he was falling, uh, his comrades dropping like flies around him. And he also saw, on the other hand, the enemy charging down the hill with fixed bayonets, uh, going down, stabbing uh, in the head all of the fallen to make sure that they were dead. And this particular gentleman uh, testifies that in that moment of consciousness, as he was falling and taking in all of the scene of, of the soldiers, his comrades falling around him, and the enemy coming down, slashing downward with fixed bayonets, that he let out a quick prayer, we could call a foxhole prayer, and said, Lord, deliver me. And the truth of the matter is the Lord answered that prayer in dramatic fashion because that bayonet as it slashed down, barely pierced the side of his neck, and he regained consciousness in a field military hospital sometime later and is able to tell of the deliverance of the Lord. Now, dramatic story, yes, but one is very similar to the one you find here in uh, Psalm 54, because here David, especially when you read in the context of the historical narrative, David is in a very similar situation. Uh, we could almost say that here David is just like that young soldier who is falling to the ground and realized uh, he has no resources left anymore to preserve his life. And so in an instant... Uh, of consciousness of the tremendous uh, danger of his circumstances and situations and of his utter helplessness, he cries out, Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your power. That's what we want to analyze this morning. Now, this kind of a praying in perilous times as we think about David and his circumstances. And we're going to notice, first of all, that there are three uh, tremendous problems that are before David. Three. And the first one shapes up here in the circumstances of the historical narrative. Now, I had us begin reading at verse 15 in our chapter. Uh, but look with your Bibles open back in 1 Samuel 23. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says uh, that David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Uh, the first thing that I just want us to know as we set up the context here is that David is on the run and he's been on the run. And you might ask, well, why is David, uh, God's anointed, on the run from the actual king of Israel? And the reason is jealousy. It's plain and simple. It just has to do with jealousy. Because you'll remember the story uh, of David's tremendous military victory 
over Goliath. It's recorded back in chapter 17. You don't have to go there. The story is too well known. David takes out the three smooth, the, the smooth stones and he slays uh, the giant and cuts off his head. And Israel has a tremendous uh, victory over uh, the Philistines that day. And as David comes back into town now uh, to, you know, to tout his victory, we're told in chapter 18 uh, that the women of the city ran out to greet him and they uh, sang very loudly in the midst of their excitement that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And of course, uh, we're told immediately after that, that that didn't settle well with Saul. It says in verse 8, Saul became very angry, for this displeased him. And then we're told from that day forward, he looked at David with suspicion. So here you have uh, the king of Israel who's insecure and jealous about this young whippersnapper warrior who just cut the head off the greatest enemy that Israel has. And, uh, of course, David just continued to prosper. If you continue to read the rest of the narrative on chapter 18 and 19, uh, a number of different times uh, Saul would try to put David in positions of disadvantage, uh, show his anger at him, and so forth. Uh, Numerous times he attempted to kill him by throwing a javelin at him as David would play before him. And, And every time we're told that David got a case of nimble toes just about the time that the javelin was released from Saul's hand, and he was able to escape every single time. Uh, And yet David remained faithful and loyal as a servant in the house of Saul. Uh, But finally we're told in chapter 20 that uh, Saul had determined definitively that he was going to kill David. And so David, of course, began to flee for his life. And there's just a little incident here I want to tuck away in your thinking because we have to come back to it. But David, when he finally was told that he has to flee for his life, it seems as if uh, he just picked up whatever he had and he took off, and there was just a few friends with him. And he went off to Nob, where the priests of the Lord were ministering, and you might remember the story, that he goes to the priests and he asks them if they can supply him with any resources, he's on an urgent uh, errand from the king, and that he has nothing. And so they gave him the showbread, which they're not supposed to do, and they also gave him, interestingly enough, Uh, Goliath's uh, sword. And so David is armed now with a few goods. And there's one little problem there with that incident is that there was a witness to it. Doeg, the Edomite. And he kept these things to himself. We'll come back to that. At any rate, David flees for his life. He goes to uh, Gath, to a Philistine city, and he seeks cover there. Uh, you remember maybe that uh, after a while they got a little suspicious of his presence and they tried to lock him up in prison and he be, began to fake like he was crazy and mentally insane and so he escaped. After that he goes several different places trying to hide. He went uh, to Moab, took his family there to keep them safe. He hid in Masada and finally he's here in the forest of Horesh. He took um, a minor break from that particular location for a while, going back to a a Judahite city named Kela, where he defended uh, this city against Philistine attack. Thought he might be able to stay there with all of his uh, men that surrounded him at this point, only to find out that uh, through a a word from the Lord that uh, the Kelites would betray him to Saul. So he has to leave again. And, And the whole picture here... Uh, from basically chapter 
18 and 19 with growing tension, but then on at 20 and following, is David, he's always on the run. And you get that sense here in verse 14 when it says, David stayed in the wilderness and uh, Saul was seeking him every day, but God didn't deliver David into the hands of Saul. But as you come to verse 15 now of 1 Samuel 23, you see that things have become to change. It says, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And so that's the first danger I want us to see here that's building up the drama and the suspense uh, that leads to the outpouring of Psalm 54 is that people are seeking him, constantly seeking him. And secondly, violent men seek him. That's what the psalmist says, or rather David says in Psalm 54. He says, violent men seek my life. It's not just that people are pursuing him, but that violent people are pursuing him. Dangerous people are pursuing them. He calls them strangers and enemies. And uh, I told you about that story of David going to Nob, and remember now that witness there was Doeg the Edomite for a purpose. Because as Saul is growing frustrated at his inability to capture David, uh, he gathers his people together to him in his hometown. And he begins to say to them, why, why, why is it that you servants of mine are so disloyal to me that you won't develop, or at least you will not pass on to me, good intelligence about where David is? He says, haven't I promised you fields and vineyards and, and access to power and positions and prominence within the government. If you just give me a little secret information about David so that I can capture him, this will be yours. And nobody said anything, perhaps because nobody knew anything, but then there is Doeg, the Edomite, sort of being the fly on the wall in the situation. And he comes forward and he says, well, I can tell you some parts of where David has been. He has been to the priests at Nob, and he has received uh, help on his way as he has tried to flee from you. And he said uh, he was given the showbread. He talks about how he was given Goliath's sword. And so uh, Saul says, okay, well, let's call the priests up here to Gibeah so that I can talk with them. And this is the point that I want to get at here because it illustrates uh, what David is thinking about when he says it's not just that people are seeking his life, it's violent, bloodthirsty, evil, stop-at-nothing people. And uh, they come up there to, to Gibeah, and, and Saul begins to interrogate them and said, did you give any help along the way to David? And they said, yeah, we gave him a sword and we gave him some bread, but we thought he was serving you. Well, Saul was displeased. And we're told in the Word of God that he ordered Doeg to slaughter them all. And the record of that is in chapter 22. Doeg pulled out his sword and he killed 85 men that day. And he struck the entire city of Nob with the edge of the sword. Both men and women and children and infants and also their oxen, donkeys and sheep. And so what you have here is the picture of a brutal bloodbath. There is blood flowing down the hillsides of the land of Benjamin uh, at the hands of this bloodthirsty Doeg who is very motivated by money, possessions, and access to power. And all of this is to help Saul attempt to kill David. And this is the kind of person I want you to see that Saul has now enlisted into his 
uh, group of people, his pursuit team of David. And what happened is that there was one person in that whole entire city and group of priests, his name was Ahitub, he escaped by the providence of God. And we're told in chapter 22 that after that terrible, gruesome slaughter and massacre, that Ahitub found his way to David and he reported to him the things that were going on. So now you have two issues here. You have David on the run. He is being chased down uh, like, like a rabbit uh, with a pack of hounds. And uh, secondly, he also knows that the people who are after his life are people who will stop at absolutely nothing, being motivated uh, by crass materialism and greed and power and creature comforts, and that they've already shown themselves to be the kind of people who will slaughter uh, for, for just money. And then the third thing now develops in our narrative, and that is betrayal. Verse 15 of 1 Samuel 23. David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And then you skip down to verse 19. The Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Very interesting here, these Ziphites are David's relatives. These are people that know him. They are from a clan in the tribe of Judah. And this is a terrible blow to David and a great bruin to Saul because, uh, as we pointed out, Saul has been searching far and wide for David and can't pick up a whiff of his scent. And the reason is because David is a very cunning person. Uh, He knows the hillsides well because he had been a shepherd. And so he had spent many years in the deserts and the hillsides of Palestine shepherding his family's sheep. Uh, He was a warrior. He was one who was skilled at the craft of deception and throwing his enemies off the trail. And so David has done very good. Even the Word of God tells us uh, how exceptional it was. He says, very cunning, and Saul knows this. But you see here, uh, David's running out of time because... Now he is being betrayed. And these uh, relatives of his from Ziph come to Saul. And they basically give him the equivalent of the grid coordinates of his location. He's right here. He's in our backyard. He's hiding in the strongholds at Harash on the hill of Hakalah, the south of Jeshimon. And they give him his address and phone number. And now David is caught in the midst of this terrible betrayal. And you see the effectiveness of the betrayal now, and all of this builds up into the tension which releases the prayer of Psalm 54. Because they go up to Gibeah, and they tell uh, Saul they can find David very easily. Saul says, all right, you tell me with certainty where he is, and I'll come down. And of course, they uh, went back, they located, and they searched and scouted, and they came right back to Saul and says, we haven't pinned down. And then you see here, verse 25, Saul and his men went to seek him. And they told David, and he came down to the rock, and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard of it, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. And here's the thing that you need to see in 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying away from Saul, for they were surrounding him. It's interesting. It seems that David had been skipping around from place to place within this region. Uh, But once he caught wind of the betrayal, and once he knew that Saul was closing in on him, 
he uh, makes a last-ditch effort to hide. It's kind of interesting. He hid in plain sight. If you understand the topography in the region where he was at, it was a vast desert. And in the middle of this desert region was this cone-shaped rock outcropping, which stood out very obviously in the middle of the desert floor. And it was to that particular location that David went to hide. As I said, right in plain sight on the backside of that rock outcrop. But you see, the danger of the situation is this. David is on one side of that big rock outcropping, and Saul is on the other, and all that surrounds this rock is nothing but barrenness and openness. And so uh, David is really stuck here because if he breaks to either of the sides uh, of of this rock, he's going to be right out in the middle of the open, exposed, and he's going to be easily attacked and slaughtered. But if he stays on that rock formation, all Saul has to do is split up his troops and send one to the left and one to the right and go around the rock, and they will eventually uh, surround him and kill him. And that's exactly what the Word tells us here. His men were surrounding him and seizing him. Now, that's the situation. That's the peril. People are seeking him, and they have been relentlessly seeking him. Violent men are seeking him. And now his back is against the wall. He's got nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And he has no capacity left to defend himself. John Calvin, taking in all of these details, commenting on Psalm 54, says this. It might have appeared just as credible that God would bring the dead out of the grave as he could preserve David in such circumstances. For it seemed impossible that he would escape. Now, just listen to these words. Psalm 54, save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and violent men have sought my life. It is in that precise moment that we are thinking about here, of Saul dividing up his men on the other side of Uh, the rock formation here and sending one to the left and one to the right and David now being surrounded and his life in complete peril that David finally drops to his knees and begins praying. He prays. We're going to make this our point of application in a moment. But but here's the thing and it's kind of a it's kind of a A duh application. In perilous times, pray. He has no resources. He has no deception left. He's got no uh, tricks left in his bag. He's got no way out of the situation. And David knows it. And now in his time of peril, he does the only thing that he can do. The only thing that's left to him is to pray. And I'm going to tell you, David calls down cover fire from above. Save me, O Lord, by your name. 
And just look at this as he prays to God. There's repetition, there's, uh, there's emphaticness, there's, there's boldness in the tone. But here's what I really want us to see here as we think about this. He prays to God and not simply to God, but then he says, Save me by your name. Old Testament commentator Kyle draws this out. He says, uh, pulling out the significance of the way David has phrased his prayer, appealing to the name of God. He says, the name of God is the manifestation of his nature, which has mercy as its central point. You see that? Mercy, and what is mercy but showing help to people who are in real distress? It's granting help to those who don't deserve it, but have found themselves in the middle of impossible circumstances. It's the same concept that we're told about in the New Testament, Romans chapter 9, where Paul describes what salvation is all about. He says, if you want me to tell you what salvation is all about in a nutshell, if you want me to be able to define for you the significance of the sovereignty of God in election and what that means for salvation, this is what Paul says it is. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. You see, and that's that attribute now that the Apostle Paul appeals to. Because as Paul so illustrates, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter the reason why you're in your circumstances. Mercy is showing help to those who are in impossible distress. And they cannot deliver themselves. And David brings that request to God. By your name, calling upon the mercy of God. And he says, help. He says, help. A very concise request. That's another thing about this prayer that I want us to see. It's a very concise request. It's not full of of, uh, flowery prose or multiple synonyms, elaborately constructed phrases. It's quick. It's concise. Help. He says, save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me. Hear me. Give ear. Reminds me of the prayer of that, um, of that father in the New Testament. Mark chapter 9, we're told about a father who had uh, a son who had been a demon possessed since the, the child was a little boy. And the child uh, would be thrown around violently into fire, into water, and all kinds of miserable things It happened to that child, and everywhere that that father took that child to have that demonic spirit exercised from him, everywhere he took him, uh, he met with failure. Nobody could get this demon out. And and this this poor little boy was was severely uh, tried and tested and hurt and beaten down repeatedly throughout many years. And finally he brings... Uh, this child to the disciples. And the disciples can't cast out this demon. And finally, uh, he sees Jesus coming down the hill and he runs to Jesus and he says, he says, help me if you can. Help me if you can. And uh, Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? What do you mean if I... I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. I, I'm the creator and maker of all things. I'm the one who strung out the pleadings and cast out the old right. What do you mean, help me if you can? And the guy says, okay. And Jesus says, here's the best way to put it. 
If you believe, I can help you. And I'll bet you that man's face just glowed immediately. And he said, okay. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, That is one of the most uh, encouraging prayers in all of the Bible. I believe, but I am weak in faith. Help my unbelief. You see, there's not a lot of words there. There's not elaborate constructions. There's not a bunch of 50 cent words. It just says help. That's an adequate prayer request. That's an adequate way to ask for God's help when you're struggling. Help! And that's what David does here. He says, help. Help. And he says this with confidence. He says this with confidence. In Psalm 54.4, he says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He does it with confidence. He calls out directly to God. He appeals to His mercy by appealing to His name. He prays concise prayer requests. And He does it with boldness. Behold, God is my helper. I want you to see the marvelous deliverance as you come back here uh, to this passage. Uh, Remember now the, the drama and the tension of the moment. David has realized there's no other way out of this situation. He can't break off left or right or go into the desert because if he does, he's exposed. He's going to be easily slaughtered. He can't stay where he is because Saul's troops have been divided left and right and they are now surrounding him. He can't climb up the rock and be saved. There's nowhere for him to go to be saved. His back is against the wall and he is sure to die. Except... Remember, he just prayed this prayer. And look what happened. Verse 27. Just back up to the end of verse 26 so you really pick up the the, the drama and the tension. David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. Now verse 27, But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid on the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. And they called that place the Rock of Escape. And I'll bet you they did. But you can see it. It's just as if uh, out, of, out of nowhere a, a miracle happened. Yeah, it, It's just like that, that soldier I was telling you about who... Who could see the bayonet coming down and said, This is the end. Lord help me. And in a, in, a, in a flash, in a moment, almost in an instant, what do you have here? David dropping to his knees and praying and pleading for a divine deliverance, and all of a sudden, a messenger comes out of absolutely nowhere and says, Saul, you've got to get off this rock. Of course, the rest of the story is that David was delivered and that David's prayer was answered. And, uh, yeah, that'd be a wonderful story and a great message to think about, I suppose, uh, if we just left it there. 
But I don't think we can. I think what we have to do is we have to look at this prayer here and say, how do we pray like that? I think that's the reason why you have all of this elaborate detail in the historical narrative of the book of Samuel, and then you see that historical narrative uh, connected here to Psalm 54, because the title of Psalm 54 says, A masculine of David when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Isn't David hiding among us? So the psalmist here has connected these events and this prayer to the historical record. And so I'm going to argue that uh, a, a major or significant reason why Psalm 54 is in the Bible is to teach us how to pray in peril. It's to teach us how to pray in peril. And so as we bring this message to a conclusion this morning, we're going to apply it. We're going to think together this morning about how do we pray like David prayed in peril. And the first thing that we have to think about here in terms of applying this, of praying in times of peril, is that you have to analyze your situation. Analyze your situation so that you become desperate. And that's exactly what David did. Uh, be mindful of the fact that this prayer was not uttered until Saul is knocking on David's back door. It wasn't prayed when a high tub came to him and told him that all the priests at Nob had been slaughtered along with their family, the wives and the little children, even the infants and the oxen and the goat and all the livestock. David did not pray this prayer when he went up to fight against Kayla. And he, and he turned back the Philistines and he hoped that they would receive him into their city and offer him refuge and protection from Saul. It wasn't prayed then when he found out that they wouldn't. It wasn't prayed when he heard that the Ziphites had gone to, the, uh, gone to Saul and said, uh, we're going to betray our cousin David to you. It wasn't prayed then either. It wasn't even prayed when he went to this... Uh, uh, this rock outcropping in the middle of the wilderness. It wasn't prayed in any of those places. It literally was not prayed until David realizes uh, that Saul is surrounding him. And uh, what I take from that is that David had analyzed his situation and had become desperate. You see, through analyzing his situation, thinking through his resources, thinking through the responses that he has already made, thinking through the circumstances and the opposition and its strength and its force and its numbers and all of these things, David finally perceived something that's critical to praying in perilous times. And that is, he perceived that he was utterly desperate and there was no one and there was no other solution than a divine one. And that is the very first way that we pray this prayer, is to evaluate our situation, to analyze it carefully, and come to the knowledge that we're utterly desperate. And the only solution is a divine solution. And so praying this prayer begins with evaluating our circumstances and understanding the nature of the problem that we face. If it's a physical problem, if it's a brokenness in our body, if it's sickness, if it's a spiritual problem, if our heart is riddled with doubt and we're full of bitterness, or we're questioning our faith, if it's an emotional problem and we're depressed, we're overwhelmed with grief, we're dominated by fear, is it stress because of our circumstances, because they're too hard, because we're stretched beyond our limits, because our finances are out of control, there's, there's more bills than money in our bank accounts. Is it relational? Is it relational? Is our marriage rocky? Are our children living out of control? Or maybe we feel like 
uh, God has just given us a very hard time in our life and our situations. He's not answered prayer. See, we have to be honest. What is it? Evaluate the circumstance. One, so that obviously we understand our desperation and realize that we don't have the resources and realize uh, what the specific problem is, why we can't meet it. But the second reason why it's so important to analyze in order to become desperate is because we would do what David did. Is because once we have analyzed and once we have become desperate, we call upon God. And this is the thing that I want us to see in this particular prayer here in Psalm 54. It's not just that he calls upon God. He calls upon God specifically. He calls upon God specifically. And he specifies, God, here is my circumstance. Here are my problems. Here is the impossibility that is in my life. And here is what it is about you. Here it is about you that can resolve my problem and my situation. And David makes it clear. Mercy, but also in verse 4. This is what David prays for because this is what the need is in his life after he's evaluated very carefully. He says, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. You see, David is modeling something very important here. He says, first of all, the Lord is my help. And that's a very generic concept, I guess, and it could fit all different kinds of situations. And it's not quite yet specific to the situation which we know forms the historical backbone of this prayer. But the next phrase clarifies it. It's called A, what's more, B, parallelism. The first clause summarizes the problem in simple form. But then the next clause expands upon it and gets more specific and precise about what the issue is. So it's not just that God is help. He says, God is the sustainer of my soul. And he's not speaking in spiritual terms here. The Hebrews didn't generally do that. When he's talking about soul, it's the whole body-soul connection. He's saying, God is the sustainer of my life. Now, isn't that the circumstance that he's in? Saul's divided his sources, his, his resources, and, and, and his troops, and his, and his fighting people. He sent one to the left and one to the right, and they're going around the rock just like this. And they're surrounding David, and David knows one thing. He's dead on a doornail. And so what does he pray to God for? You're my help, but you are the sustainer of my life. You are the protector, the preserver of my soul. You see, he's analyzed his situation, and then he's come to God directly to appeal to God, to his character, for what corresponds in God's character to his situation. God delights in that kind of a specific prayer. God delights in that kind of a specific prayer. Because that kind of a specific prayer indicates that we've thought about God, that we've looked to Him, we've understood Him. And we understand how he meets our needs. So that's a very, very, very important issue. Analyze the situation, not only to understand what our problem is, but how God can provide the relief that we need. And the second uh, means of applying this prayer to us, and praying as David prayed here, is that it's a model of praying fervently. Notice uh, how David here uh, keeps saying, Oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. That's fervency. 
You see, you, you don't just pray that in a mild manner, dispassionate, half-hearted kind of a way. He says, oh God, help me. And you know that he's pleading, particularly based upon this, the nature of the circumstances, as he's being surrounded by this fighting force. He says, oh God, help me. You see, it's the model of prayer for us, of praying in perilous times, to plead with God. You know, I don't know where it came from, but I suspect, based upon hearing a lot of person it's not because I'm a prayer critic and I don't want to come across that way but but um, I, I have to say I have kind of heard this as sort of the tone and tenor of prayers that people feel uh, awkward about pleading with God they feel awkward about pleading with God almost as if they plead with God it's evidence of a lack of faith and, and so the prayers are almost um, I don't want to say bland but they seem dispassionate. We kind of have a way of praying like we're sitting on icebergs. And, and, the, and the thing of it is here is, is it's an act of faith to plead with God. I don't know how you can read the Psalms without seeing uh, how, how, how these devout men of God have just poured out their soul. Pleading. Pleading with God. You see, and it's an evidence of real faith because you're saying, God, I, I know that there is no other place to turn. There is no other person that I can come to for help. Please answer my prayer. The third and final thing that I think that David does here in his prayer, which is a model for us and teaches us how to pray in perilous times. First of all, it's to analyze the situation so we understand the problems, so we understand how we're desperate, so that we understand how God and the particular aspect and character of God that's able to fit uh, the circumstances that we're in and solve them. Uh, that's important. We also understand that the kind of prayer that David prays here is a pleading prayer. And the third thing is that it's a prayer that is prayed with complete confidence. It is a prayer that is played, prayed with complete confidence. There's a subjective confidence. You can see it in verse 4. Behold, God is my that's a subjective confidence. That's, that's David. That word behold is underscoring David's certainty about the fact that God is there to hear. Behold, God is my helper. It's the confidence that's in David's heart. But then secondly, there's an objective confidence. There's an objective confidence. The Lord, he says, is help. The Lord has helped. Now David could have easily been confident in that for a lot of reasons. You know, we know that David was delivered from bears and lions, and Philistines and Goliath and Saul a number of times. So maybe he's thinking of past deliverances. But whatever it is, it's confidence. He says, the Lord is my help. It's objective confidence. The Catechism um, puts this in a very beautiful way. When it's explaining uh, question 26 and the very first article of the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And here's how the Catechism explains and applies it. It says, Whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he is able to turn to my good. 
for he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing also, a faithful Father. That's confidence. He is able to do it, being Almighty God. And I know he's Almighty God because he's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of everything. Of course he's able to do it. But he's willing also, a faithful Father. He is my Father in heaven. He has adopted me through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has invited me and made me a partaker of His families. So confidence in God. He's not only able, but He's willing. That's confidence. And that's precisely the kind of objective confidence here that David exercises and is manifested in this prayer. Behold, God is my helper. And that's the backbone of a prayer for help in perilous times. God is our helper. It's to pray confidently. And you know, um, I think that that's where I want to wrap up this morning as, as, I, as I apply this. It's with that confidence. And I want us to think about why should you be confident? Why should you be confident uh, if you're in a situation of peril as David was? That's, that's an important question to be able to resolve in your thinking. Why should I be able to pray with confidence? And I think that the answer to that is found um, in verse 1 where he says, Vindicate me. He says, Vindicate me. And I think that that is the, uh, the window into the confidence because... Uh, Obviously, David was vindicated immediately with preservation of his life. But you see, we can't help but think of a later, a more climactic, anointed one. We can't help but think now, as as when we hear that word vindication, when we hear vindication, we've got to think of, of somebody praying, I'm righteous. Everything that they're saying against me is wrong. I have no strikes on my record. I'm perfect. I'm righteous in your sight, so I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Whenever you kind of hear the echo of that language, you have to immediately start moving away from the context of the psalm to the ultimate and final fulfillment, which is in Jesus Christ. And and this is what I want us to think about. As Jesus now is the ultimate vindicated one, prays a similar prayer for help. We ought to be mindful that in the midst of the depths of his peril, as he is wrestling with God in prayer in the garden, saying, take this cup from me. That he wasn't delivered from death. He wasn't delivered from death as David was. He wasn't delivered from the peril of death. And you see, as you move on in the New Testament, you begin to realize that the New Testament repeatedly connects the fact that Jesus wasn't delivered from the peril of death to confidence and prayer. You see, because Jesus wasn't delivered from the peril of death, but from the peril of the grave, because he was pierced for our transgressions, because he bled and died at the cross, we're told that because of that, he takes that blood into the very throne room of God, placates divine anger and wrath against us, and opens up a way into the presence of God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, through faith in Christ... 
We approach God with freedom. And here's the word, confidence. Now listen to how the preacher puts it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why should you be confident in prayer? Why should you be confident in the midst of your peril when you pray? Well, the answer is from a New Testament perspective, because Jesus, because Jesus, with his precious blood, has opened up a path into God's presence so that we can come into the divine throne room, so that we can come to God and plead, so that we can come with boldness and confidence, and so that when we do that, we have the promise of accessing help, which is exactly what David prayed for. And so that means for you people of God, because Jesus Christ is the vindicated one ultimately, because of that, you're entitled to arm yourself with boldness. And it's perfectly legitimate and proper for you in the midst of your peril to pray knowing that God is your help. And so, whatever struggle it is that you have this morning, physical, spiritual, psychological, emotional, relational, financial, whatever it is, you are entitled to pray in the midst of your peril. Save me, O God, by your name. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. You are entitled to pray with complete confidence, appealing to the name of God, trusting that He will answer your prayer. This prayer, this psalm, exhorts us to pray through peril with confidence. I'll leave you with a quote from John Calvin, who uh, speaks about the confidence of the believer in prayer based upon these words of David. He said, David takes heed of the particular circumstances in which the psalm was written in order to teach us that we should never despair of divine help even in the worst situation. The confidence you have this morning is that because David couches his prayer against the backdrop and narrative of complete distress and God answers him, uh, that so too you ought to be able to pray with such boldness and confidence and expectation that God will deliver you. So our parting admonition is whatever your peril today, throw yourself in pleading prayer onto the mercy of God and trust that he will hear you. Let's pray.